Welcome back to another edition of the Around the Block podcast from Coinbase. I'm your host, Justin Mart. And this week, we've come across a really fascinating and powerful analogy for how to think about blockchains, how to piece together what are layer one blockchains, what are layer two blockchains, what are rollups, this whole complicated world. But it turns out there's a relatively simple analogy that helps cut through all the complexity and help us all think more clearly about how these systems really work and what's coming down in the future. So today I'm talking with Haseeb Qureshi. He is the general partner at Dragonfly Capital, a venture capital firm in crypto. And he's the one that's populated and thought about this analogy. And it has to do with how blockchains can be thought of as cities and how all the different layer ones, layer twos, rollups, et cetera, can basically be explained in terms of cities. So there's a lot to get into. Let's start unpacking it now. Let's dive in. Part of the reason why it's great to have you on the podcast for the first time, hopefully one of many. Um, but you know, I, I uh, read your blog post a couple months ago about this articulation about how blockchains could be viewed as cities. And you know, every once in a while you run across mental frameworks that kind of like, oh, it's a great one. It, it makes so many things kind of a little bit clearer in your head. It crystallizes concepts a little bit more. And so that's kind of what we want to dig into here is this mental framework. Um, this idea that blockchains can be viewed kind of like cities. Um, but you know, to kick it all off, actually, I want to just get your perspective on how you began to view blockchains as cities. What was kind of the genesis story there? What prompted that analogy? That's a, that's a good question. I, the, 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 the origin story for a lot of this actually is, is really from um, talking to a lot of folks who are, who are less deep in, in crypto. So, um, you know, I think if you're if you're in crypto and you've spent a lot of time in the layer one universe and you understand how you know why there are a lot of different blockchains, um, it's more intuitive. You, know, you you don't necessarily need to explain to you why there are multiple blockchains. Uh, but for a lot of folks who are coming into the space, because you know there's been such a enormous um, uh, widening of the tent within crypto, uh, so many people coming to me. And you know, I remember this in 2017. People would be like, "Why is there Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and Litecoin? Like, why do you need three of them?" Um, and of course, they didn't know that there was like 50 of them, but they, yeah. they thought <laughs> you know, there were only three Bitcoin clubs. Um, but so now there seems to be like this plethora of these smart contract chains that are very similar in principle to Ethereum. If you're if you're just coming in and you don't know a whole lot about crypto, maybe not obvious what even is the difference between these these uh, smart contract chains. And so a lot of people would end up asking me like, well, isn't it just the case that obviously one of them is going to win and the rest of them are going to go away? Um, and it's I think for most people in crypto, it's not obvious. Um, you know, it, it was it was um, unclear back in 2019, let's say, whether or not, you know, you said this, this term Ethereum killer, which is yeah. this idea that all these new emerging layer ones were going to basically usurp Ethereum's place and there was going to be no more Ethereum. There was just going to be these new blockchains that were going to kill Ethereum because Ethereum wasn't innovating fast enough. And um, I think uh, it's really obvious to me that that's no longer going to happen, right? Even if these new emerging layer ones are going to be successful, and they, and they did drop the name Ethereum killer. No one talks about quote unquote Ethereum killers anymore. Um, as, as a sort of tacit recognition that that is the wrong mental model for understanding what these blockchains are and how they're going to relate to each other. Uh, but for most people coming into crypto for the first time, it's not obvious why everyone started talking differently about these layer ones. And that's yeah. why when I was trying to explain this intuition that I have about why it seems really clear that these blockchains are going to coexist, um, how to explain that to people. And that's where I came up with the cities analogy. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You're right that we haven't actually heard that Ethereum killer analogy in a long time. And there was a lot of fervor around, oh my gosh, we're just going to get a bigger, faster, better version. And clearly the superior technology is going to win because it just it fixes all of Ethereum's problems. Um, 
it actually, it's a bit of a meta story to this because we're going to be talking about this analogy in particular, but I also have the sense that analogies are always imperfect in certain ways. They miss a lot of the nuances. And we've had many different mental frameworks, many different analogies in crypto over the years. But let's get into it. So, so exactly what do you mean by blockchains as cities? And, and let's flesh out this one in particular. Yeah. So here, here's the way that I kind of draw out the analogy. So um, most, of, most people, when, they, when they're looking at blockchains for the first time, um, they think of blockchains as networks. That's the usual metaphor that we use for blockchains, understanding them as networks. But if you think of a blockchain purely as a network in the abstract sense, right, then you think of it, okay, a network like, like the internet, like Facebook, like you know, one of these social networks or one of these um, uh, you know, uh, integral networks that underlie uh, the internet. And these networks, um, if, if blockchains are like these networks, then that means they have network effects. It means they're fully extensible. It means they can grow arbitrarily big. <laughs> And that generally means that only one version will win, right? There's only one IP, uh, the, the Internet Communication Protocol. There's only one TCP. There's only one UDP. There aren't multiple competing standards that, that, that uh, fight against each other. It's because the network effects drive the, the winner, effects. right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. The network effects just make one person totally dominate. Uh, they sort of expand like a germ until they eat everything. And, um, and, and I argue that networks are actually a bad metaphor uh, or a bad analogy to, uh, to think about blockchains because blockchains have a unique constraint that makes them not like those other networks. And the unique constraint of blockchains is the block space. Blockchains can only be so big. And the reason why they can only be so big is because if they were arbitrarily big, then it would require arbitrarily large resources in order to verify the blockchain. Right? So if you have a blockchain that has got tons and tons and tons of data in it, moving through it every single second, then if you want to actually verify the correctness of that blockchain on like a laptop, it would not be possible. You need like a supercomputer in order to verify everything that's going on on a massively large blockchain. So blockchains have to be physically constrained. There's only so many transactions that can run through per unit time. Yeah, this is actually a really critical distinction, right? I mean, as you say, this is kind of what what's the the foundation of this analogy as blockchains as cities is, hey, they're actually physically constrained to some degree. They cannot grow arbitrarily large. Just to crystallize that a little bit though, right? I mean, we have networks that grow very large. And blockchains, while a network isn't the perfect analogy, they kind of are a network though. There are nodes in this network and you can add nodes and take away nodes. And so it behaves like a network, but it is constrained in a certain sense. I just want to make sure that we're crystal clear on why it's constrained, right? You mentioned that it's this idea that, you know, there, 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 there can't be um, an arbitrarily large amount of, of compute happening on the blockchain because it has to be trustless at the end of the day. It has to be decentralized because the entire point of blockchains is that we don't have central parties that we have to trust in to accept the computation or accept the things that are happening. If we don't have decentralization, then we're basically just rebuilding the existing financial system or the existing networks and putting a different wrapper on it. So that critical element, the trustless element, is what makes blockchains different from everything else but it's also what creates this constraint in how big they can grow. Exactly, exactly. And so the, um, you know, the common refrain is uh, don't trust, verify. Meaning that if you cannot yourself verify the correctness of this blockchain, then you're trusting some third party. And if you're trusting some third party, then this thing requires trust. It requires trust from third parties. And you know, in the Bitcoin white paper, you know, the key line is we created a mechanism for um, I can't. I, I, I should be able to repeat these <laughs> quote words. the blockchain. I, 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 I know, I'm, like, yeah. I'm in church, but it's something like um, without reliance on third parties, right? That's the that's yeah. the important point. Is the verification of a decentralized form of payment without reliance on third parties, meaning that everybody themselves knows that this thing is operating according to the fixed set of rules. No one is cheating. No one's inventing money out of thin air. Nobody is you know going out and, and doing protocol bailouts without anyone else knowing. Everybody is operating according to the rules, and that's what keeps right. the blockchain trustless. So we we say it's physically constrained. 
what are the ways in which this becomes physically constrained though, right? So clearly we can't have arbitrarily large, you know, compute processes and things, but what's that practical limitation on the average person if they, if they try to be trustless on the blockchain? Like wh what's the actual constraint there? So the, the way that that translates into your experience of the blockchain is it means that uh, there are a few things that, that cannot be, um, there are a few constraints on the performance of that blockchain, right? So the first one is latency. A blockchain cannot be arbitrarily fast. Why can it not be arbitrarily fast? So Bitcoin, for example, has 10 minute blocks. The only time Bitcoin transaction actually gets confirmed on average is about 10 minutes. Now, there's some variance in it. It's not exactly 10 minutes, but on average, it's about 10 minutes. Uh, Ethereum is like, I think it's like 12, uh, you know, 13 seconds on average for between Ethereum blocks, meaning that yep. between those 12 second intervals, nothing is happening on Ethereum. Literally zero things are happening until the next block shows up. Um, now, there are some blockchains that move faster than that. So Solana, for example, has blocks every 400 milliseconds, which is very, very fast. Avalanche is, uh, you know, between one and two seconds. Um, you know, Celo is every five seconds. So different blockchains parameterize the block time differently. But you cannot have a blockchain that has 50 millisecond block times. You can't have that. Why can't you have that? The answer is that because the blockchain needs to be, you need to have multiple people around the world achieving consensus, agreeing on the state of the blockchain before it moves forward every single block. Everyone needs to like kind of get around a table and say, yes, I agree that in this decentralized network, we're all going to shake hands and say, cool, this is the new set of blocks and we're going to move forward to the next one. In order to do that, you need people around the world to communicate. And for people around the world to communicate in these consensus protocols, um, it takes time, like literally the time for the speed of light to transfer around the world. Yeah. And, and you know, transfer between you know, people in Asia and people in the US and people in Europe, um, all of those messages that need to take place in order for everyone to vote on what's going to be the next block, uh, it takes time. And that is the, the physical constraint on latency, right? So you cannot have a decentralized blockchain that generates blocks as fast as like, you know, let's say Google, right? Google, when you want to send a, uh, a search query to Google, it happens as fast as the, the transit time from your computer to the data center that is serving Google requests nearest to you, right? So that can be in the order of about 30 milliseconds or you know, sometimes even smaller, depending on where you are geographically. Um, no blockchain can operate that fast because of this constraint on decentralized, um, uh, because of this constraint on, on consensus. The second constraint is in throughput. So yes, and this is the key one in my mind. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Those are the two important parameters, right? Throughput is the amount of, so latency is how long it takes for a transaction to get confirmed. Throughput is the amount of transactions that can get done in a period of time. So if you imagine like a, you know, like a, like a pipe with water flowing through it, the, the uh, length of the pipe, how long it takes from water to go one into the other, that's latency. Um, the amount, the, the width of the pipe, how much stuff can be in there at any piece of time, that's the throughput. And so if you want to do 500 transactions per second, 1,000 transactions per second, 2,000 transactions per second, that is too high for what Ethereum can do because Ethereum is constrained by its throughput. Now, why is the throughput constrained? The answer, there, there are two reasons. Um, well, the basic reason is that um, the, the, the rule uh, within Ethereum and the thing that, that bounds Ethereum uh, uh, total throughput size is that uh, the, the Ethereum Foundation and the folks who are responsible for the maintenance of Ethereum believe it's very important that anybody with consumer hardware should be able to verify the Ethereum state. Meaning that um, if you are running all the transactions on Ethereum on your laptop, let's say, you should be able to keep up. If the throughput is too high, let's say the throughput is like thousands and thousands of transactions per second, that a normal person on a laptop would not be able to keep in sync with Ethereum. Mm -hmm. Now, why, why, why a laptop? 
Why that? Why is that the rule? The answer is that, well, that's just kind of what the culture of Ethereum has chosen. The answer is like, well, people just draw the rules somewhere differently. They kind of, based on some cultural artifacts, they, they choose the lines here or they choose the lines there. You know, Solana decided that like, hey, you should be able to verify this on hardware you can buy on AWS. And Avalanche decided the line is somewhere different and uh, you know, other blockchains decide somewhere different. That's the rule for Ethereum. And that is why Ethereum transactions throughput is constrained where it is. So maintaining decentralization is the core, the heart of cryptocurrency. And that actually is fundamentally what restricts uh, the usability of these networks. You have, to, you have to maintain the cost of validation needs to be low. So I think a better mental model, given these facts for understanding uh, blockchains, is thinking of them as cities. Now, why cities? So the first thing, of course, about cities is that cities are also physically constrained. Cities are also arguably networks, right? Like, so, you know, a city like New York City, it's got hubs, it's got, you know, roads, and people connect there, there's a lot of people who come together in New York City, but it is physically constrained. Cities cannot be arbitrarily big, right? Uh, but they have actually a lot of properties in common with blockchains. And so if you want to imagine blockchains as cities, the best way to understand why is it that we have, you know, going back to this analogy of like, why, why is there Ethereum and Solana and Avalanche and all these other things? Well, so imagine that Ethereum is New York City. So Ethereum is New York City. And if you, know, if you know anything about New York City, you know that New York City is a very important city. It's a, it's a popping place. There's amazing culture there. There's you know, a lot of really wealthy people. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the most important celebrities and most important companies in the world are, are based in New York. It's a very historic city. Um, but it's also really friggin' expensive. It's crowded. It's congested. It's got uh, some problems. Everything costs money. It's got some problems. It's really old. Like the infrastructure is kind of crumbling in a lot of different ways. People love to complain about New York City, but they also know they're like, look, the reason why all the people in New York City are there, despite all these problems, is that it is the most happening place in America. Right? It is. It is. Yeah. You know, kind of pound for pound, per block, uh, per per sort of square mile, the most um, culturally significant, probably most uh, you know wealthiest. Uh, most um, most you know, cultural innovation yeah. is happening in New York City. It speaks to it. It's expensive because it's important, right? People want to exactly. live there because it's the cultural center, it's the financial center, and that dictates that hey, you know, there's a limited amount of real estate. <laughs> New York City cannot expand out forever, right? Kind of why right. this analogy works well with blockchains, and so the real estate that does exist ends up being much much more valuable. That's right. That's right. And so you know, if you compare that to Ethereum, it's kind of the same story, right? You've got in New York, you've got the most important. You know, banks and financial institutions in Ethereum. You've got the most important DeFi protocols. They're all in Ethereum. Um, you've got you know the most important cultural institutions, celebrities. You know, uh, 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 you know, lots of television and, and things like that come from New York. Um, it's also where you've got the biggest DAOs. You've got the most NFTs. You've got you know the most interesting cultural moments. You know, Constitution DAO and all this stuff. It all happened on Ethereum, um, and it's also got the most wealth, right? So New York is home to some of the richest people in the world, uh, and the same thing is true for Ethereum. Yeah, so this, this analogy ends up explaining a little bit about why we have other networks as well, right? I mean, Ethereum mm -hmm. is New York City. It's the cultural center of crypto, of smart contract chains at least. Um, has so many things going for it, but as you say, it's expensive, it's broken in some ways. A lot of people rail against it because it's you know way too expensive for their uses. Um, and so suddenly we have other cities popping up. Now the question right. I kind of have here, or at least my mental model is, you know, why do we need other cities to begin with? And the answer is around scalability. We want these cities to be able to serve the purposes of everybody but not everybody can live in New York City, right? Ethereum cannot possibly you know, scale by itself to the level to have millions and millions of transactions per second because again, of that physical constraint we've already talked about. And so- A lot of people now are priced out, right? Like Ethereum, Ethereum fees are so high. It seems that you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're a young, you know, hungry artist, 
it's very tough to go go to Manhattan today and and go try yeah. to make a living there. Like you have to go find someplace new um, where it's more affordable and you can really build a life for yourself. And that's what a lot of people who find themselves on Ethereum say, look, Ethereum's great, but I can't afford it here. I'm too late. It's time for me to go somewhere new. And that's where you kind of open up the different doors to how you end up scaling a city. Yeah. Now, when you're scaling a city, there are multiple different approaches to how you scale. You know, let's say, okay, we know New York is it's full, it's expensive. Uh, we want to scale past New York. How do we scale a city? There are a few different approaches. The first approach is to build up. So this is, you know, in, 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 the, in the real world, in real cities, that's called building skyscrapers, right? Investing in skyscraper technology. So New York, I can see behind you, uh, there's some skyscrapers behind you in, in downtown Austin. Um, they're, you know, every major city, uh, when they get full enough, they start building upward. And in Ethereum, the equivalent of this is roll-ups. Roll-ups are the equivalent of building upward, right? And why are roll-ups like building, building upward? So very briefly, just to summarize what a roll-up is. So a roll-up is a layer two solution, meaning it's a solution that's built on top of the underlying blockchain or on top of the underlying layer one. Um, it's sort of rooted in the layer one. It's almost like a, a little mini blockchain that kind of extends out from the layer one, but derives its security from the underlying layer one. So it's not like a separate blockchain in the sense that you have to trust a whole new set of validators or trust a whole new set of, you know, Genesis uh, block and all this yeah. other stuff. Instead, it has the same trust properties as the underlying uh, blockchain in the same way that like, you know, if you, if you live in a high rise in Austin, um, you still, the laws of Austin still apply to you. It's not, although it is, physically different, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of almost like a city that's built upwards on top of Austin, but really you're still in Austin. You still have the, the laws and the, you know, the building codes and all the other things in Austin apply to you. And if you want to go downstairs and go see someone who's in another high rise, right? If you see someone in your high rise, it's nice. It's air conditioned the whole way. But if you want to go and see someone in another high rise, you have to go all the way down to the street. You have to go, you know, take a cab or take an Uber or whatever, get across town and go to that other person's uh, high rise. And that means that uh, although you are living in this special space that has made a lot more space for you, it's a lot cheaper to live in a high rise than to live, you know, in a, in a house in, in Austin per se, but um, it requires you to still have to interact with the underlying city. You don't escape Austin just because you're living in a high rise. In the same way, if you live in a layer two on top of Ethereum, it allows you to have much lower fees than you'd have directly operating on top of Ethereum. But if you want to interact with somebody who's in a different roll-up, you have to leave your roll-up go down to Ethereum, pay Ethereum fees, go into that other roll-up, and you know, there's also these exit uh, games that require time, and you know, there's, all the, there's all these issues with actually getting across town to go to the other roll-up on Ethereum. And so roll-ups are a big part of the solution of how you scale a city. But yeah. they are not themselves sufficient to answer the entire, like the answer was not we built high rises in New York and then no one ever left New York and everyone lives in New York now. Um, speaks a little bit to the, the future of, of kind of where Ethereum and other base layer ones are heading, right? They themselves can't scale out large enough and fast enough, right? So you got to build up. Building up right. is how you actually achieve scale. Um, but it kind of also begets the point about cities is like, you know, you don't go to a city to just be on the streets. You go to be in other buildings. That's where the things are actually happening. Right. And so if we extend the analogy a little bit, it's like look, looking forward, if Ethereum is going to scale, we have to kind of do it through rollups, which by the way, you know, Vitalik and others have, have confirmed the future of Ethereum is rollup centric. It means that all the applications, all the utility, all the things you want to do are going to essentially live inside other skyscrapers. But those skyscrapers are still connected. They're still sitting on top of Ethereum. They're borrowed from Ethereum's security model. There's ways where they're really, really interconnected, right? right. Um, so that, that I think is a very elegant, elegant example. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd say, I'd say a lot of the things you want to do are going to be on rollups, but probably not all of them. 
right? So it's very likely, I mean, the same thing is true in Austin, right? Like not everything that you do in your time is in a high rise. Probably a lot of your time is spent inside air conditioned buildings, but sometimes it's like, oh, hey, I want to go to like a concert and a concert <laughs> requires you to be outside, right? Like it's, it's only really interesting when you're outside. Um, and so there will probably be some things similarly in Ethereum that um, most things, a lot of things are going to live on rollups, but some things that are like, look, I'm willing to pay the cost of being outside on the ground floor because what I do is so important. I don't want to be stuck inside a single building for everyone to be able to use me, right? So for example, like, you know, you, when you go to bars, when you go downtown, you know, to 6th Street or something in downtown Austin, right? Like those are on the ground floor. You're, you're walking yeah. in and off the street to like actually go out because it, it's just not a good time to like go inside a building and go, you know, technically they could do that, but it's just not, it's, it's not as good of an experience. In the same way, I would imagine that something like Aave or Compound, which don't require an enormous amount of throughput, they don't require, you know, which allow you to do on-chain borrowing and lending. Um, you know, those are very low velocity applications. It's very likely those are not going to live in rollups. Those are probably just going to live on directly on the Ethereum layer one. And if you don't want to borrow larger, you know, smaller or large amounts, then fine, there's probably going to be another smaller borrowing protocol on a rollup that you can go use that's cheaper and faster. Um, but if you want to borrow from the really big pool that all the whales are using and all the, you know, the, 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 big, the big guys are using, it's probably going to live directly on layer one. And it's going to be more expensive, but people on layer one are willing to pay that cost. Yeah, and there's certainly a lot of implications too around this. You know, this mental framework is helpful because I think it's easy for, for people to wrap their heads around it, right? They can imagine cities, they can imagine how you scale a city, how you build a city, they can imagine the limitations there, right? And so in this case too, we're talking about reasons why applications might live on the base Ethereum chain and not on a rollup. Another reason is composability, right? If, you know, composability, just, you know, a simple quick definition of this, it's the ability for one application to interact with another application natively. And in a sort of atomic, you know, single transaction type of fashion, not having to wait or travel somewhere else to pick up your laundry and then bring it over to the dryers, right? It's, it's, uh, that's kind of like the idea of composability. You, you kind of lose that if you live in one skyscraper and you have to go to another skyscraper. And so composability does live on the base layer on the Ethereum main chain, and it does live inside each individual skyscraper, but it is a bit of a limitation in this example, right? That's right. That's why, you know, a great city has like bars and restaurants and you know other other you know music venues and it has them all next to each other because it's it's really nice when you don't have to like go get in a car and go get across town to like go to the music venue right it's right it's right across it's right it's right across and people go straight from the bar to the restaurant um, yeah. but if the if the bar is in like one big building and you have to go to the 12th floor and then the restaurant is like some other building way over here it's like yes technically there is a bar and a restaurant but they're not um, intermixing in the way that like when we talk about blockchain composability, being in the same contiguous space allows them to have, be a lot more vibrant. It creates a lot more intersections and, and creativity uh, in, in the blockchain world that um, is really valuable. That's obviously one way to scale a city is building skyscrapers, building up, right? But there are other ways to scale cities or other ways to scale communities. And so in your paper, you kind of discuss how to think about the main building blocks in crypto of layer one networks, uh, rollups and also interoperability networks. And so let's transition a little bit and talk about interoperability networks, what those are and what the analogy might be there. So interoperability networks, uh, they're a very old idea in crypto. So if, you, um, if you're familiar with Polkadot or Cosmos, those are, these are two of the major interoperability networks in crypto. And essentially what they do is they allow, um, they allow an easy way to launch an application-specific blockchain. An application-specific blockchain is basically a blockchain that's dedicated to only doing one thing, to basically one particular application. So we, we, we talked about borrowing and lending on something like Compound or Aave. Um, an application-specific blockchain would be if Compound or Aave created their own blockchain 
and on that blockchain, you couldn't, you, you know, it's not like a general smart contract platform. It's just a place where you can only interact with Compound. Or you can only interact with Aave. That's an application-specific blockchain. And, um, you know, when we look at different ways to scale blockchains generally, one of those paths is that applications, which are taking up a lot of space on Ethereum or on Avalanche or Solana, they could instead eventually say like, hey, you know what? I'm so important. I, I, I'm such a central part of so many people's experience that I'm actually, I, I, you know, I, I can't have these neighbors next to me taking up space and, and taking up attention and congesting the network. I need to go live by myself and be on my own chain so that people can just interact with me unperturbed. So it's almost as though, you know, if, if you were, um, you know, you were, let's say you were a business and you were inside of a skyscraper uh, and you're like, you know what, Coinbase, we're so big. We have so many employees. We, what we do is so important. We should just go get our own building. And the only thing in this building is going to be Coinbase, which, you know, Coinbase did once upon a time. Um, <laughs> and uh, that, you know, it's, it's, it's sensible to do that, you know, ostensibly, if you are a big enough application. Um, and so, you know, one of the most prominent examples of that today is Axie Infinity. Axie Infinity today, they have their own blockchain. Um, they, they, it's called the Ronin uh, blockchain, it's a sidechain on, on Ethereum. Um, but they basically decided like, look, we have so much throughput and we have so many individual unique users that we can't just live on another blockchain. We need to have our own chain. And so Cosmos and Polkadot were the original purveyors of this idea of the application-specific blockchain. And this is one vision of how blockchains can scale, is that every individual application develops its own blockchain, and each of these blockchains talk to each other through some kind of highway network or communication system that allows the blockchains to interact and for people to move and capital to move in between the different blockchains. So Polkadot has one vision of how to do this. Cosmos has another vision of how to do this. Um, and the way that I analogize application-specific blockchains as a way to scale is almost like, um, like factory towns. So, you know, one thing in, in, the, in the normal world, right, like if you go drive far enough outside of, you know, a major metropolitan area, you'll find like a factory town, which is a town that's just dedicated to like this factory. You know, so, you know, Boeing or something has a factory here and everyone here works for the factory um, or everyone here works for NASA or everyone here works for this, you know, this fabric plant. Um, or this is just, a, you know, a place that, the only thing here are outlet stores. And so there's nothing else. There's not really an overall city. There's just outlet stores over here, you know, just like 30 minutes outside of the, the metro area. Um, and so things like that exist, right? They are definitely a part of the fabric of how cities scale as they move some of their industrial activities outside of the city center um, in a place where people are willing to go, but it's not, you know, a, a vibrant place of activity. So I think those will exist. And they clearly already do, right? Axe Infinity is a perfect example of it. Um, but they are not the primary way that economic activity is organized uh, within, within you know, the, the normal world. Uh, and, and they're also not the primary way that economic activity is organized within blockchains. So I think that they have a role to play, application-specific blockchains, but they're not um, the lion's share of where uh, creativity and, and action is really happening today in blockchains. If, if you just think about it, um, you know, without, without looking at the blockchain side, let's just look at, you know, imagining a town, right? Um, you know, there are places where you could go, you could drive, you know, 30 minutes out of town and get cheaper prices. Um, if you go to like, you know, the, the outlet stores or the Walmart or whatever, that's like way, way out in the middle of nowhere. Um, but for most people, they're like, look, I don't want to drive 30 minutes out. Like I, I, I'm willing to pay for the convenience of this thing being inside my city, being next to the other things that I care about, being more kind of city-like even in just the culture and the vibe of the thing that's going on, right? Like being in that city center has a lot of um, other accretive effects because of the fact that it's close to the other things that you care about, and it's being influenced by the other things that you care about. Um, and so the reality is that um, there are a lot of benefits of being near a city. And it's, it's hard to quantify all of them even, right? It's like hard to put your finger on every single individual little thing, but it's really obvious when you just introspect that yes, 
even if I was saving money by going 30 minutes outside the city to like go to, you know, maybe a nice string of bars or a nice, uh, you know, a nice, uh, you know, outlet store or, you know, a really nice mall, um, it'd have to be a lot better for me to be willing to do that. Like even if it's just marginally better or moderately better, I wouldn't be willing to do it. Yeah. And so maybe the analogy here, tying it back to crypto, if you're living in New York City, you have your one apartment building and you have everything nearby, right? You don't really have to go too far to get your laundry done, to get your shopping done, to go to the concerts. It's all kind of there for you. You're used to it. You know the plumbing, you know the infrastructure, and it's, you know, a little bit expensive, but whatever it works. You move to farming towns, well, suddenly you have to find a new apartment, right? And then suddenly you have to travel between them. And so the, the analogy in crypto would be, look, you have to go across a bridge. You have to transfer your assets from, you know, Ethereum over to Polkadot or Cosmos or one of those hubs or zones. And the infrastructure there is just a little bit more challenging to piece through. Things are a little bit different. You have to get a new That's wallet. Right. You have to think about block explorers. You have to, um, you know, if you, if you care about this stuff, think about the security models involved. So there's just more mental overhead involved. Not to mention, if you want to do a specific action, so say you want to play the Ronin game, awesome, go, go to Ronin and play Axie Infinity there, right? But you can't necessarily do anything else. If you want to do anything else, you got to get off the Ronin chain, go through a bridge again, wait some time, right? And so there's where the usability kind of suffers a little bit. Maybe the question to you, though, is do you see a world where these interoperability networks smooth out those infrastructure challenges? Maybe the bridges get really fast. Maybe they get really, you know, maybe the UX, maybe there's one super wallet that connects all the wallets, and then suddenly it's just kind of very simple. Well, let's, let's move on to you. I mean, I know your, your post sketches out three things, right? It sketches out the, the roll-ups, the interoperability networks, and also other layer ones. So we've got New York. We can build skyscrapers. Those are roll-ups. We've got mining towns and, you know, shopping towns and what, what have you for interoperability networks. What is the example of other layer one networks? What do those represent? So the most obvious answer of, okay, if, if New York's full. How do we scale New York? The most obvious answer is you start a new city. So, and that is in practice, of course, the answer of like, okay, where do people, when they don't fit in New York, where do they go? They go to other cities. So let's go start Boston. Let's go start Chicago. Let's go start Jersey City. Let's go start, you know, LA. And when you look at these other layer ones, this is kind of the equivalent answer, right? Instead of saying, okay, how do I build Ethereum up? How do I, you know, kind of build outside of in the periphery of Ethereum and find one way for one application to scale? Let's instead build a whole new layer one. Now, when you build a whole new city, one of the things that you'll notice almost immediately is that there's a bunch of work that you have to do to start a new city, right? You have to start over. You have to start, you have to build roads, you have to build police stations and hospitals and schools and all this stuff. You need that foundation before you can then start building a new city. And once you build a new city, now the first thing you'll notice in a new city is that we have a pretty good idea of what's gonna work when we start that new city, right? So like, okay, after we build the infrastructure, we're probably gonna want a McDonald's. I'm gonna guess that people like McDonald's, right? No matter where you are, people are gonna <laughs> like McDonald's. They're gonna like Walmarts, you know? So um, one of the first things you can do, very low risk when you start a new city, is put in a Walmart, put in a, put in a McDonald's. People will, people will buy that. Those will be successful businesses, right? The same thing is true for some of the core primitives that we've seen on all these different chains, right? So every chain, there's a successful AMM, a, a, a trading platform. There's a successful lending protocol that gets a lot of demand. There's a successful NFT marketplace. Some people want to trade NFTs on, on every single chain. Um, and so there are some core primitives that we always know in every city that they're going to succeed as long as, you know, that enough people actually show up in the city for the city to be a city. Um, but what you notice over time, which each, with each of these layer ones, is that they're all different in the way in which they build the city. And this is also true for cities, right? If you look at the major cities in the U.S., so you've got New York, you've got L.A., you've got Chicago, you've got Houston— they're, they're all big cities, but they're all different. And not only are they different in the fact that they're in different places geographically, they have different weather, but even more importantly, they have different cultures, they have different institutions, 
they have different focuses industrially. So there are different industries that end up, end up uh, characterizing those cities. And you see the exact same thing happening in layer ones. Each of these blockchains, they're very different in their character, very different in their philosophy, and also very different in the kinds of applications that they end up attracting. But each of them is a different approach to how to build a city that could stand potentially toe-to-toe -to -toe with Ethereum. Yeah, this is actually why I really like the analogy, because it paints a nice picture of how the social effects are going to play a role in what gets built, right? You have Ethereum as kind of the, the traditional hub, the, the financial hub, but people are going to other blockchains because, hey, the vibe is a little bit different. So the question to you is like, are, are these cities, these different blockchains building meaningfully different things? Like say, is one a city in the sky with flying cars? Is another an island in the sea or something, right? Like, you know, are there really meaningful differences or do you actually see them as kind of really, really essentially similar things, but culture is the predominant difference? I would say it's it's very clear that these blockchains are very meaningfully distinct from each other in terms of their technology, in terms of their infrastructure. And um, this this is maybe a little bit where the city's analogies becomes a little rougher. Um, but you can but you can see parts of it, right? Like, you know, LA or Houston are, are cities that are much more focused on building new infrastructure and building new things, building housing even, right? Whereas New York, like you know, no shot in hell that there are any new buildings are going to get built anytime and soon. Governance is very different um, too, yeah. Mm -hmm. Governance is very different. Institutions are very different because they're oriented around what the ambition is of the city in terms of what it wants to accomplish as, as a city. Um, and so you can see the same thing in Solana, right? Solana is, is a city that's, or a sorry, layer one blockchain, is very committed to the idea that we are going to keep innovating and changing. Uh, and they say, like, look, I'm willing to trade off the throughput in order to get better decentralization. And so I think at the end of, um, you know, in, in the history of America, Obviously, you know, in, in the rise and fall of civilization, many cities have come and gone. Um, in the history of America, it used to be, of course, that Boston was the capital of America, and it was also the most vibrant city. And it, it actually it ended up migrating over to New York over time, that New York became the most important city in America, but originally it was not. Um, it's, it's obviously not impossible that that happens again. It's not likely, given that New York is, you know, twice as large as L.A. today in terms of population, and, and uh, you know, certainly uh, significantly ahead in terms of the overall market capitalization of all the companies that are based in New York. Um, but it's, it's, not out of, it's not impossible to see that uh, that could change. Today, Ethereum is like New York. It's by far the largest uh, blockchain. It has the most market cap. It has the most users. It has the most uh, 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 TVL or total value that's locked on Ethereum. But it's not out of the question that if you, if you give it enough years, that there could be enough of a material difference between Ethereum and Solana or Avalanche and Near or Polygon or any of these other blockchains, that they could potentially supersede Ethereum. But it's, it's the, 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 the point of that analogy is that it's certainly not written. I, I think what you're very likely going to see is that the equilibrium for layer one blockchains is going to be very similar to cities in that a small number of cities are going to matter. Um, there's going to be you know, maybe, maybe 10, five to 10 cities that matter on a, or layer one blockchains that matter on a global scale. Um, but uh, the, the number one blockchain is going to be, is going to have the lion's share uh, of the overall economic value of blockchains. But that doesn't mean that it's the only one that matters. So the second prediction I make is that uh, layer, layer twos will exist, and they'll be important, but they're not the whole story. Um, they won't be sufficient to, to really um, uh, fully scale what people want to do on public blockchains. Um, a third prediction is that uh, interoperability networks and application-specific blockchains will exist, but they'll be a small contributor to the overall scaling story. Um, and then the, 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 the last major prediction that I make is that interoperability, which is the ability to connect up other uh, layer one blockchains together, is going to become really important. That's going to be like sort of the highway system that, that connects all this stuff together, or the shipping system, or the freight system, or whatever. Um, and 
right now we the the, the solutions that we have for cross chain um, bridging and uh, transmissibility of messages is pretty janky. It's very idiosyncratic. It's not. We don't really have like a um, kind of a global highway system that connects all the blockchains together. Um, but I think we will eventually have that, and whoever manages to build that will probably be able to capture a lot of value. Yeah, th <laughs> this is why I think mental frameworks are so powerful. They help you kind of think through a, a very complicated topic with more precision. You can reason about it a little bit better when you have uh, a framework to, to rely on. Um, and again, this one I think works so well because, again, they're physically constrained networks, and so they're more like cities than they are like the internet or some other network technology. Um, but, you know, taking a step back, though, analogies are never perfect, right? I kind of alluded to this in the beginning where I'm like, look, I mean, analogies are great for a lot of things, but they often don't appreciate the full spectrum of nuances. And so this one's powerful in its simplicity and how it's easy to grasp. Maybe I'll ask you uh, one final question here. Um, are you, like, bullish or bearish on New York City and its skyscrapers? or <laughs> other, uh, other ecosystems, other cities? I would say I'm, I'm bullish, um, but I'd also say all of the above, right? I'm bullish on New York and its skyscrapers. I'm bullish on Ethereum. Um, I think Ethereum will continue to succeed, and, and it's got such a fantastic community and position as the you know, center of gravity of the crypto world and, and the crypto innovation. Like, still, most of the pitches that we get are people who want to build on Ethereum. Um, but I'm also bullish on the non-Ethereum world, you know, I think I think if you imagine that blockchain is America, I think that America is gonna is gonna win. America is gonna be awesome, and uh, New York is gonna be great. But a lot of other stuff is gonna be great too. So I'm I'm excited about the the whole of it. Yeah. Well, see, this has been great. Super fascinating conversation. I love again the mental frameworks. Um, <laughs> I always try to try to find the novel new ones and uh, incorporate them into my mental set of of how blockchains work. And I thought this one was super powerful as well. Appreciate that. I, I appreciate you having me on. It's a lot of fun. Well, there you have it. I hope you found that analogy as helpful as I did. It certainly does help cut through a lot of the complexity and give a much firmer, clearer grasp on how to think about blockchains. But let me know. Did you find it interesting, exciting? Do you have comments, other questions that were left unanswered? Comment at me on Twitter or on YouTube. And also be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you listen to your, your podcasts. And catch us on the web as well, coinbase.com slash around the block. You'll find previous podcast episodes as well as long form research on topics that we dive into. And as always, I'll see you next week. Today's conversation is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice. Actual results may vary materially from any forward-looking statements made and are subject to risks and uncertainties. 